or your smartphone, something you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. We will be in Philippians chapter 4. We've been working our way through Philippians over the last several weeks, um, and this morning we will actually conclude uh, this letter from Paul um, to the church in Philippi. Um, It's been uh, remarkably, um, I think, relevant, maybe even more so than I would have imagined going into the letter um, as we have looked even last week at anxiety, um, as we've looked at opposition arising against the church um, in Philippi, and and, and just knowing that Paul is writing from prison, right, that his circumstances are less than ideal. And yet he has shown pastoral concern, has loved and cared for um, the church in Philippi so well. Um, And so I'm going to pick up this morning um, in verse 10. And, and I just want to say that one of the reasons that we, we preach the way we do and, and our tendency is we start in a book and, and we just work our way through it over the course of weeks or months, however long it takes, um, is it allows us to see what the author's intent was, what, what, what the context is. Because in this morning's passage, we're going to have one of the most misapplied verses in all of Scripture, um, one that's probably outside of John 3.16 is as well known as any in Philippians 4.13. And I think if we were to just out of nowhere be preaching on Philippians 4.13 this morning, that sermon would feel really different to you. But instead, because we have walked through this book and we've seen Paul's pastoral heart as we've seen um, the, the circumstances and the difficulty of the letter, right, it begins to help us to understand what did Paul actually mean by this very familiar, very famous, um, very posterized verse, all right? So let's pick up. In verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will richly supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. And all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so we can almost, right, imagine this being read out to the church in Philippi, right? That that, that whoever, whether it's Epaphroditus or someone else in the church, is reading this letter now back out, knowing that Paul is in chains under Nero in Rome, right? But is still sharing his heart and his concern and his love for them. That we see some of the, the, the just back and forth of a personal letter like this. And where I want us to begin before we get into verse 13 is to see that Paul is, he's just thanking them, right? As he's finishing this letter, he is thanking them 
for sending Epaphroditus, for sending finances, for sending supplies and resources to care for him while he's in prison. We see this in verses 10, verses 14, and verse 18. Right? I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. Verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. In verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Right? And he is saying, listen, I've received it. I've got it. What you wanted to happen has happened, and thank you. Now listen, there, there's quickly, though, in verse 10, a potential for a misunderstanding, right? Because listen to how he words this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you have revived your concern for me, right? If, if you're not careful, right, and this is where text get us in trouble, right? That you, can't, you don't always know tone, that it could almost be like this backhanded compliment of like, well, it's been a little while, but you did finally send something, right? Like that tone could be perceived here. And, and Paul is aware of this. He's being discerning, and he's saying, listen, you were indeed concerned. He makes sure to clarify, I'm not backhanded criticizing you here. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He wants to make sure that they understand, I got it, and I'm grateful for it. I, I know it's been a while. I'm not upset with you. There's no misunderstanding here. Um, that that I, I'm grateful, but listen, what brought me joy and what brought me satisfaction wasn't that I got a gift. It was that you sent a gift, right? He's trying to clarify what brought me to peace and what has brought me satisfaction wasn't that I got money from you, but it was that you have partnered in the gospel, that you are sharing in this with me. He's saying, listen, our friendship is not based on your usefulness, Right, that usefulness is the lowest bar of friendship there is, of like, we're friends as long as you're useful to me. He's saying, I don't have to receive anything from you for you to be a beloved friend, a beloved church in my life. And so I'm grateful, but don't think that my gratitude is only based on whether I get stuff from you. Verse 15 and 16, he tells them, and you Philippians, yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, which is the area that Philippi is in, that no one entered into partnership with me except for you. And so he reminds them of a past time when I was in Thessalonica and you've given to me. And if, I want you to remember, we looked at this as we started the letter of Philippians. But the church in Philippi was not a rich church. In 2 Corinthians 8, as Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he references this area. And he says about them, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so the church in Philippi has, has a history of being a generous church and not out of their abundance, right? It's out of their poverty, out of their affliction, out of their difficulty that they have just wanted to partner in the gospel and to give freely to Paul, to other churches, to saints in need. That he's reminding them, you have been in, in this with me from the beginning. Church, I, I, just a quick reminder for us, I think sometimes... We like to be so self-sufficient, so independent, that it's hard for us to receive from others, 
right? Especially if we're going, I don't know that you have it to give. And yet, Paul is thanking them for their gift and saying, listen, there is a blessing in giving. He's like, I'm grateful that you gave because of the spiritual fruit that it indicates. And I think often we're quick to tell someone, no, 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 don't do that. You don't need to give, right? We have that awkward conversation of like, I don't know if I should take this or not, right? And he's saying, listen, I didn't ask you for it, but I'm grateful. Why? Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Verse 18, I have received full payment. He continues, the gifts you sent were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Saying your very act of being generous and of giving out of your need is worship. I think it's important that we allow people to participate in the blessing of this. And to see it as worship, that it's not the amount of the gift, it's not the gift itself, but it's the heart in which the gift was given, right, by the giver. That he's telling them, thank you for this. It was an, it was a, an offering of worship. This word, a fragrant offering, would have made them think back to the, the priestly system, right, where, where sacrifices were being laid out and burnt offerings. And if they were, if they were done appropriately, not meaning that they were sacrificed correctly, but that the heart was given, I want to sacrifice. I'm giving this out of my, my heart's desire that it was this fragrant aroma to the Lord. It was honoring and pleasing to Him because it was a heart that had been given to Him. So church, it's important for us to know that all of life is worship. Right? That, that your hospitality is, can be worship. That your generosity is worship, that it's not just in the songs that we sing. It's not just when you're having your quiet time. It's not just when you're reading scriptures. It's not just when you're sharing the gospel via words to someone else, right? The the way that you um, love your spouse, the way that you pursue your neighbors, the way that you parent your children, the way that you respond to a boss at work, right? The way that we make decisions can be a fragrant aroma, honoring to God, pleasing to Him, as we trust Him, as we depend upon Him, even in our lack, right? That these activities that wouldn't look spiritual on the surface are spiritual, right? That all of life we can do for the glory of God. And then He's just going to end by encouraging them, right? He says, I want to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me, they greet you, right? He's beginning to just remind them, you're not alone. I know you're facing opposition in Philippi. You're not alone. There are other brothers and other sisters and other places who know of you and who think of you and are praying for you, just as you're doing the same for us. And so he's making them more of a global mindset here. It's not just you. We're in this together. And he leaves just this, this little phrase in there in verse 22. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. Where is he? He's in prison. Where? In Rome, right? And what he's saying is, listen, I've told you that God is at work as I'm in prison, and if they let me out, like, glory to God. And if I die in here, then I'll go be with Jesus. Like, I can't lose. He's like, the praetorian guard, those who would not have heard the gospel otherwise are hearing the gospel, and he's letting them know here, there are those in Caesar's own household in the emperor's own household, who have come to faith, right? That they're telling you, I know you're facing opposition even from our family and our government, but they are coming to faith in Jesus, right? This is just this subtle encouragement of, oh man, 
Like God is at work. And he's bringing about belief and faith and salvation, even in what would have felt like the most difficult, far off places. And so this short phrase is just meant to be an encouragement to continue to stand firm, right? Which has been the heart of the whole letter. Church, you've got to do it together. Opposition is coming. If we're going to stand firm, we have to have this mindset of Christ. We have to do it together, not in isolation. And even when opposition comes, Jesus will be faithful to you. And just as a means of kind of this cherry on the top, he's like, and even in Caesar's household, there are those who are believing. And they greet you and are grateful for you. So that's a little bit of housekeeping in this section. But let's go back to to verses 10 through 14. And look at this idea of contentment. Listen, as we think about the American church, as we think about our American society, as you think about even your own life, I think contentment is something that often we know is lacking, right? It's not something that we have in abundance. And so whether you think about it in your own life, if I just need a little bit more, right? Whether you think about it in in your kids' lives, um, whether you think about it um, with celebrities who seem to have everything and yet they don't have enough, whether you see it on Facebook with people constantly complaining about what they don't have or what they need or what they would want, Right? So whether it's in singleness or in a new job, whether it's in, in, in their kids or in not having kids, whether it's in the place that they live or their relationship, right? a lack of contentment tends to just kind of reign in society. And the, and the reason is we're insatiable, right? Like we're, we're created to have joy and satisfaction and contentment. And until we find it, we're going to pursue it. And we're going to pursue it with all of us. The the issue is, is we tend to try to to fill that hole, right, that that longing, that lack with things that aren't of Christ. And then because of that, we're not satisfied, right? So I think about, like, just an example on that's that you've all had, right, if you've been around children at all, is like your kid can literally have a pile of toys around them that are brand new and go, hey, can we go to the store? Right, like there, there, there's no limit to what the toys that they can have, right, that haven't even been opened, that haven't been played with, and yet there's just this desire for more and more. And yet when you provide it, it doesn't bring satisfaction, right? You, maybe you see this even with your own bank account, right, that you look at your savings account and you're like, I need just a little more. I know I've had more than I've ever had, but I need just a little more. Or now that it's in there, like, I don't want to spend it, so I need to get some more money, right? And that we just begin to become insatiable with toys or with money or with relationships or with sin, right? It's the danger and the destruction of sin, is that we seek sin looking for satisfaction, and yet here's the thing, it won't. Hebrews tells us that sin will bring fleeting satisfaction, right? It will bring fleeting pleasures, meaning it'll give us enough to think it's going to satisfy, and then it wears off, and so we have to go get more. And yet this time we need more of whatever it is, so whether it's a drink, or whether it's sex, or whether it's power, or whether it's greed, whatever it is, we need more to get the same level of satisfaction that's fleeting as last time. And so we become trapped. And it's this downward spiral 
and we understand that it won't satisfy, but we're looking for just enough of a hit, right? just enough that it will give us a little bit of peace, even if it's fleeting in the moment while we long and look for contentment in something. Right? I think we, we all are aware of this. And yet, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi from a Roman prison under Nero who is destroying Christians and saying, hey, I'm content. Like, let's not like, just run past that. Like, well, it's the Apostle Paul. He's supposed to be content. Right? The same Holy Spirit is available to us that Paul has. The same gospel. And he is saying, I am content in my status where I'm at because of Jesus. How, right? Like the question then is, is how? So let's look at this. Verse 11. He says, listen, I'm not speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, like he currently is, or when he was shipwrecked, or when he's been beaten, or when he's been run out of town. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty, abundance, right? And hunger, abundance and need. And then he says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So listen, he is not here talking about um, hitting a home run for Jesus, right? He's not talking about the American dream. He's not talking about the goals that you have laid out before you. He is talking about, I can do all things, which means I can face any circumstance because of Jesus. Not that whatever American dream you have, whatever goal you have, I can go get it and I can do it and I can accomplish it because Jesus is with me. He's saying whatever circumstance comes your way, whatever thing you face, Jesus will be enough in that. And I can face it with him, whether it's abundance or lack. And so what he says is, I can do all things. See that he has satisfaction and contentment, which means when there's loss, like being in prison, a loss of freedom. If, if you've read any church history, there have been martyrs from the beginning, right? Those who have died for their faith. And if you read their accounts, often they're found singing, praising God, right? Sharing joy as they're on their way to their death, right? Like, right, they can't harm me, Justin the martyr, right? They can only kill me. Or tonight we will dine with the king, right? Like these, these thoughts where you're going, no, 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 I want to beg for my life. And they're like, in my loss, in my death, I'm going to be with Jesus. And there's like this joy that is overwhelming in those moments. And yet if you were to think about that being your situation today, it would feel crushing. So how is it that they're saying in all things, in all difficult situations, I can have satisfaction and contentment, but it's also important for us to see that he says in abundance too, right? That I think our assumption is, is when things are good, I don't need Jesus. I just have what I have. And he's saying, no, 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 when I had too much, when I had abundance, when I had plenty, I need Jesus to be content in that, because we're prone to wander, and I'm prone to want to find my hope and my peace and my satisfaction in things other than Jesus. That in the best of times, we need Jesus, not just in the difficult times. And yet, for, for most of us, we think about needing Jesus when we get the, the hard phone call, when we get the bad diagnosis, when we face job loss or relationship breaking, when we face family drama. Oh, like, I need Jesus. 
when things are smooth sailing, we're like, I think I got it. And, and Paul is saying, no, 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 you need Jesus just as much then to find satisfaction and contentment in the good as you will in the difficult. Look in verse 11. He says, for I have learned. I've learned how to do this. Right? It's not a switch that all of a sudden one morning gets flipped on and now you're just content in everything. He says there's a process to this that we have to learn how to be content. And so let's, let's walk through this short four-chapter book real quick and look at a few things that he has been teaching them, asking them to know, to learn. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 12, he says this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's he talking about? His imprisonment. So he's saying, listen, that like my loss has been for gain, that people have come to know Jesus because I have suffered and I have had loss. So what's he saying? That even in our loss, right, that God can use it for his glory and for gain. That's something for us to know. In verse 29 of chapter 1, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So he's saying, One of the things you need to learn, one of the things you need to know is in your suffering, it is for God's glory, for his sake, that he is not looking to keep you from all suffering, that suffering is a means of refining, that we are following in the righteous, holy, and perfect footsteps of Jesus in our suffering. If we go on to chapter 2, and we're just hitting some highlights here, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He simply reminds us that it is God who is working in us, that it's not just your efforts and your attempts, that God is alive. And because he's alive, he's at work to refine you and to make you look more like his son. Verses 14 and 15, he asks this difficult thing, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Why, Why do we go back to this one? If we lack grumbling and complaining, what does that reveal? Contentment. Right? He's tying all this together. That if we, have, if we learn the, heart of, the art of contentment in Christ, we will not be a people who grumble and complain because we are trusting the character of God. If we go on to verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial... If, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and will rejoice with you all. Paul is saying, even if I die, I can rejoice in that. Why? Because I'm going to go be with Jesus, and I've poured my life out for the gospel. So he's saying, even in the facing of death, I can rejoice, and I can be content, and I can be satisfied because I trust that God is in control. He then talks about Epaphroditus, who nearly dies, right? That putting our lives at risk, right? that that is not somehow displeasing to God or God's displeasure with us. If we go down to chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. He says, listen, the whole thing is a process. That we are working and striving and God is at work in us. We don't just wake up sanctified and holy and perfect. It is this process, even though that is our standing before God in heaven, in Christ. 
Verse 14, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call. He gives us this vision of what are we doing? We, are, we have a finish line, and it's Jesus, and it's heaven, and we are running hard after that. We are straining as a sprinter, right? Not looking behind us, but moving forward. He has given us this goal, and it's beyond this life. It's beyond putting down roots in this life. It's towards eternity, and so we are moving through. And so the circumstances that would look to throw us off, right, we begin to shuck those off because we're saying, no, 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 that's where I'm headed, right? If, if, if all that life is is getting the most out of it for as long as we can, right, then we're not going to strain and strive. We're not going to be able to celebrate if death is coming. But if this life isn't the finish line, if Jesus is, if eternity is, we can face this life differently, he continues. Um, he tells them, listen, there are enemies of the cross, but you have been made at peace, verse 18, that we have peace with God. 20 and 21 of chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, right, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. He's like, this world doesn't get the final say. You're going to get a new holy, perfected body that you were meant for, right? That, that goal that we have. Then in verse 4 of chapter 4, he just says, listen, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He does not clarify it. He does not give caveats. He says we rejoice. Verses 6 and 7, where we spent a lot of time last week talking about anxiety. He says, listen, in everything you can take your request to God. And then because of it, you don't have to be anxious. You can actually be at peace. And then in verse 19 of chapter 4, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Right, so this whole letter, he's just been laying out these things that if we know these things, if we believe these things, if we trust these things, which are all found in the person and the work and the life of Jesus, he's like, in that then you can begin to be content and satisfied regardless of what life throws at you. Whether it is in abundance, right? And it's it, Because if you see these things, you're going, this abundance isn't life itself. Jesus is life. This is just good at the moment. And if life is really, really difficult, you can say this isn't, doesn't get the final say either. Jesus does. And so whether it's in abundance or in lack, He's saying, I can be content because I know who has me and where I'm headed. And so he's laying out these things that he's learned and wants us to know. He's saying, church, strive after Jesus in every circumstance. In every one. Being content does not mean being lazy, where we just throw up our hands and say, let go and let God. Whatever he wants to do, he'll do. If he wants me to know the Bible, he'll open it for me, right? He'll download it. If he wants me to love somebody, he'll bring them to my door, right? We work, as Paul says, hard, but by the grace of God does any fruit come. But does, by the grace of God does any transformation come? Because God is at work in us, and so we strive after Jesus in all circumstances. But our circumstances don't have to change for us to be satisfied or content in Him. They may change. 
Some of you are in some hard circumstances right now, and better circumstances are coming for you, and Jesus is sufficient in both. And some of you right now are in abundance and plenty, and harder circumstances are coming, and Jesus is no less good when that happens in your life. And he is no less satisfactory, no less sufficient. Because this life isn't what we're building our hope in, but it's in Jesus. Right, so I think the difficulty with a passage like this, a verse like Philippians 4.13 that we know super well, this idea of contentment that feels both knowable and super difficult, is that we just like, let it be this like, intellectual argument. And what we need this morning is for the Spirit to break through hard hearts and hard minds that would go, one, it's not possible, because Paul says it is. And two, that would say, I don't know if I want it. I don't know if I think Jesus is that good. That he would open our eyes and our hearts to see him as beautiful this morning, as sufficient, as enough. So, listen, it's a process that we learn. And Paul's laid out some of the things we need to know. But church, know this, hear this. It is not enough just to know these things. If you can simply nod in agreement and say, yes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know that verse. Yes, God is alive and he's at work in me. I know that verse as well. And you don't put your faith, your belief, your trust, and then action that is indicative of that faith into it, it will do you no good. It will impact you in no way other than to frustrate you. So it's not enough just to know these things. And we're going to end with a couple of action steps this morning. The first is this. We started by saying all of us have faced discontentment. Most likely, if we're honest, all of us could come up to the mic this morning and lay out what our discontentment is and what area of life it is. Some would be big, some would be small. Some of you know immediately, some would have to dig a little more. So what do we do with that? What do we do with our discontentment? We attack it. We bring the fight to it. We look for what isn't satisfying us. We look for what sin might be underneath that, and we attack it. We don't say, oh, no, 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 I'm supposed to be content. I'm going to put a smile on and pretend like this thing over here doesn't, it's, it's not there. He says, no, 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 you look at it, and you go to war with it. What do we do? We battle it with truth. We take the truths of who God is, and we attack our discontent with it. We take the truths of what he has said about us. We take the, the truths of the promises of Scripture, right? So listen, um, in Isaiah 41, listen, one of the, the, one of the times where I was most discontent in my life um, was during our adoption process. Before we had someone like a birth mom line, I just, I was so frustrated with the whole thing. Um, I was frustrated because of a struggle with infertility. I was frustrated with the struggle of like, why is someone not picking us? I'm frustrated with like, God, like, what are you doing? Like, don't you know what we want? And we're going to do, we're going to do good with it. So like, why are you keeping this from us? Right, so, right, so let's take something in your heart, right, some discontentment, and here we apply and we attack it with Scripture. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It is not a promise that we were ever going to get a child. But it was a promise that he was with me and that he was for me and that he would strengthen me as my knees gave way, as my strength failed, that he saw me and he heard me and he knew me and he would minister to me. And so he was fighting right for my soul to find contentment when I didn't have what I wanted. Listen to how the author of Hebrews says it in chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, right? So he says, listen, you may be greedy. You may have some struggle here. You may want some more. Be content. Why? What's the reason that the author of Hebrews gives? Because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? Like he's like, the antidote is the truth that you have what you need in Christ and he is sufficient. And you can long for things and you can want things, but when discontentment creeps up, you better know it's a lie. And that it will not satisfy you. That you can get all the money, you can get all the power, you can get all the relationships, you can get all the pleasure, and it will not satisfy you if you are not satisfied in Christ. So we attack it, we battle it with truth. We take it to Jesus, right? In prayer, it's why he told us in verses 6 and 7, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then verse 19, and my God will supply every need. He does not say want every need of yours according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. He's saying he will give you everything you need to be contented in Christ. Church, can we trust this morning that he knows you better than you know yourself and that he sees further into the future, right, than you see yourself. And so he is going to care for you. And he is going to nurture you, and he is going to disciple you, and he is going to work to draw your heart into satisfaction and contentment and overwhelming love and joy and peace in Jesus. And by his severe kindness, he will remove things that don't. And church, would we not be mad at him when he does? Right? Because he's saying, no, 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 this is going to lead you to destruction. I'm going to remove that. Here, have this because it's me, and it's way better. Right? We, we, we see kids freaking out right, when they have some nasty sucker that's dropped in the grass. And you're like, just let go of it long. No, don't put it in your mouth. Right? Give it to me. Right? I've got another one. And like, by the time you're unwrapping it, they're like losing their mind because you jacked their sucker. And you're like, you're dirty. And you're wrong. And you don't trust me. And some of us are holding on desperately to things in our life going, no, 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 this will satisfy me. And God's saying, you don't even know what I have for you that is so much better. I'm better. So we attack our discontent. We look for the sin. We look for the source of it. We battle it with truth. We take it to Jesus. And lastly, we trust that God is in control. And if he's in control and he's good, then we can trust him. That nothing will be wasted, not even pain, not even suffering, not even difficulty. Because he knows us better and he loves you. And he is at work in you. So we attack it. The second thing is this, is that we have the mindset of Christ. 
What is the mindset of Christ in chapter 2 of Philippians? It's humility. A lot of times discontentment comes because we just think we're pretty awesome. And pride comes up, and we're like, God, you owe me, and, you, and I deserve. And we start to think in these, man, these ways instead of having humility of trusting his character. And the last thing is this, is that we treasure Jesus, right? That we enjoy him. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Paul writes this, Indeed, I count everything, everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as garbage, as filth, in order that I might gain Christ. Church, would that be our heart's cry that I would say, it can all go away if I get Jesus. Listen, he's, he's better than you think. He's more than you think. He's a deeper well than you think. That insatiable appetite that we have that is never contented, is never satisfied, it is in Him. Because He is an ever, a, a never-ending well. We can mine it for the rest of eternity and we will not get to the end of it. We cannot find anything deeper or better. He is more beautiful and more impressive and more kind and more joyous and more satisfying and more loving and more everything than you can imagine this morning. That He would open our eyes, that He would take away the blinders and our stony hearts of sin to see that this morning. That we would ask Him and we would pursue Him through His Word. Paul says, listen, I've learned to be content, including prison. He does not ask them to pray for his circumstances to change. He doesn't pray that their circumstances will change and they're facing opposition. What does he say? I want you to glorify Jesus in whatever circumstances you have. I want you to, I want you to find yourself in him because he is strong and you don't have to be. He is impressive and you don't have to be. He is enough and you don't have to be. And he will satisfy. So maybe even this week you might take the, these four short chapters and read back through them now with the end in mind. How was it that Paul was content? And we just kind of read back through looking for these things that we need to know and learn and how do I walk in and trust them. Church, he's enough. He is sufficient. Regardless of what circumstances you in or what circumstances may come. He will prove himself faithful. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for um, your kindness, which sometimes we don't see as kindness because you're removing things from us that would blind us or distract us. Father, I just pray this morning that as we open up your word, as we interact with, with one another in our church family, as we sing, Father, as we pray that your Spirit would give us eyes to see. Father, that you would knock us on our backside like you did Paul to reveal your glory and your beauty. God, that we would be a people that would say, I am content in whatever circumstances come. Where that is so easy to say and so difficult to imagine, 
and probably just quite honestly difficult for us to believe this morning, and yet it's true. And it's true because Jesus is alive. We have access to him. He rescues us, makes us a new creation. Father, would we simply believe that and then live our lives in accordance with that this morning? In Jesus' name.